Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back. Today I'm joined by Dr. Christian Gonzalez, also known as Dr. G on Instagram, who I'm guessing you're following, but if not, what are you doing? You need to do that immediately. His posts are amazing. And he completed a two-year residency position at the Competitive Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Here he became proficient in the integrative oncology through exposure to various disciplines and modalities and he also has personal connection to cancer as his mother sadly passed away of breast cancer and that sparks and fueled his passion. Although he had planned to pursue dentistry, he was drawn to naturopathic medicine and a holistic approach to patient care. He completed his Doctor of Naturopathic Medicine at the University of Bridgeport College of Naturopathic Medicine in 2014. He provides optimal patient care by incorporating naturopathic modalities such as botanicals, homeopathy, nutrient and nutritional support, as well as other therapies. Dr. Gonzalez applies the belief that the body has the innate ability to heal itself when given the favorable conditions to thrive, which I absolutely agree with too. So in this episode, we're talking about how to reduce your risk of breast cancer, including how epigenetics is absolutely key. So if you have the BRCA genes or if you're not sure, there are so many things that you can do to reduce your breast cancer risk and it doesn't automatically mean that you need to go and have a mastectomy. The important things to do, both lifestyle, nutrition, um, environmental wise, to reduce your risk of breast cancer and overcome it if you or someone you know are struggling with currently. A reminder for all women about the importance of breast examination and what to be focusing on whilst doing that. Lab testing and why Dr G loves using the Dutch test with his clients to determine breast cancer risk and lower the incidence of reoccurrence. And finally, he touches on quite a few times the importance of community for overall health and well-being, which I love. He has quite a big following on social media, but I love the fact that he's not as interested in that. He wants the in-person and community aspects as well, which is great to hear. So I'm sure you're going to love that. He also has a podcast where he talks about things like glyphosate and GMOs and the importance of organic. So definitely check that out too. All of the resources mentioned will be linked in the show notes. When I was an undergraduate, I knew that there was a part of me that really, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but there was a part of me that wanted to go into helping people in some capacity. I had no idea. And there was, there was a really nice uh, science office. And one of my soon to be mentors, I didn't know it in the, in the beginning, but yeah, we really spoke through this and I decided that I didn't want to go to medical school, but I would rather go to dental school. So um, everything throughout my undergraduate was structured at going into dental school. I, I shadowed um, different orthodontists and I did end up going to dental school for about a year and a half. And um, 
it was within that time that my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. This was back in 2008. And her diagnosis um, was really interesting because um, in my head, and I'm sure that many people who have experienced someone with cancer in general, uh, in my head, it was like, oh, okay, well, she's going to go in, she's going to get chemotherapy or surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, and then she's going to be okay. Um, it's, that's the illusion that we have when it comes to cancer. On top of that, when I was really taken aback and sort of like what was a catalyst to everything was when I was sitting in the office with her and her oncologist, and I asked her oncologist a little bit about what she, she should eat, and he had no idea. He just said, I'm going to get the dietitian in. But then listening to the dietitian uh, explain the foods that she should be eating because she was losing weight, she needed calorically dense foods, and hearing the foods that she was explaining, which were really crappy calorically dense foods, um, devoid of nutrition, processed. And I was like, how can, I mean, I didn't know nutrition back then, but how can, how can someone be in this state and be recommended this and with all the confidence in the world? So that really gave me some sort of insight into what the heck is going on in conventional cancer care. And that was the seed because the, the universe is beautiful because it'll give you everything based on, you know, where your attention is going. And my attention was kept going on that and that and that. It was soon after I learned about naturopathic medicine and learning about that gave me the opportunity to uh, dive deep. And within two weeks, I was out of dental school and um, in, uh, in back home on the East Coast of America and, and then getting really started on my journey through naturopathic medicine. Unfortunately, my mom passed away in my first year of naturopathic school, but um, it gave me more of a drive to go into women's health, especially cancer. Um, I, I, didn't, I was a little nervous to go into cancer because I didn't want to be around people who were really sick and dying. But um, the, her death was sort of my own gift and seed too, towards moving into a place where I'm okay with uh, being around people who are the sickest of the sick. And it's that more it's that more fulfilling when you see these people really how their lives change and how they start getting better. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been quite the journey, but that was, you know, that was in 2011. So it's been ever since then where I've forged ahead into women's health. Yeah. And I can tell you're so passionate just listening to you on your podcast and on social media, it really comes across how passionate you are. And it's great to see um, a guy so into like, organic tampons mm -hmm. and all of these things like i love hearing that stuff mm -hmm. um, and i think it's yeah it's hard to find sometimes exactly yeah but it's becoming more um prevalent which is um amazing due to the 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 work that people like you are putting out there and just making people more knowledgeable on that subject and speaking of the naturopathic approach what's your naturopathic view on cancer so I don't know if this is going to be like an easy question or not, but some people believe that like there's um, energetic or um, is it just all phys physical? What are your thoughts? No, no, no. That's a, that, that, that's a great question. It's certainly not all physical. There's no disease that is all physical, period. Um, there's a spectrum where, you know, if I, if I break my leg, that's purely physical. But we're talking about disease, particularly chronic disease. It's much, much deeper. So when you ask about naturopathic approach, naturopathic medicine is structured around 
moving forward the whole being, right? So it's not breast cancer, it's Jane, right? Who has breast cancer. Yeah. It's, it's what the body manifested, the breast cancer in the breast as this disease, right? So you have to look at the person. And I think that's a major mishap where, where we are in the conventional paradigm is that no, we look at the disease and then we look at the quickest way to put a Band-Aid on the disease. Um, and many of the times these Band-Aids are really, for lack of a better analogy, just sweeping dirt under the rug. And as you're sweeping it under the rug, you can only sweep so much until you step on the rug one day and all this dust comes out, right? And that's the point I'm trying to make is through naturopathic medicine, it's like what we do is look at mind, body, and soul and systems as a whole, how is the whole body structured? Because you cannot just take out a breast, throw chemicals at it and burn it with radiation. And then when you take a quick screenshot, you know, for one month, right? You take a, after all that treatment, you take a screenshot and you go, look, no more cancer. And then, you know, three months later, no more cancer. That's like it to the analogy of having a field full of weeds and, you know, cutting it, physically cutting it, throwing all these chemicals at it, weed killer, and then, you know, using a torch and burning it and then taking a picture of the field and saying, look, no more weeds, we're good. It, there's a huge problem after treatment. And the big problem that I see is that people don't change the soil. And when you don't change the soil, that's a big, big, big problem because what now you're doing is predisposing yourself to the same exact weeds growing back. On top of that, conventionally, they'll say, go home, go back to your life, you beat it, blah, 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 which is what they said to my mom. I'm like, oh, well, she beat cancer. Nothing changed for my mom. She didn't start working out more. She didn't change her diet. She didn't go on any protocol supplementally. She didn't, um, she didn't address any subconscious traumas that emotionally and subconsciously are driving that too. So when we look at the human, it's, it's all different parts of what makes that person a person. You see what I'm saying? Cancer is never just physical. I promise you that. The, pro the, the, the problem is, so when I used to see patients, they used to come in, I used to sit down with them and do all of these. Well, we used to, I used to hear their story and I used to write down everything and I used to draw like this little pie graph. And in that pie graph, you know, I, all of the known causes of cancer are there that we know physically and then also mentally, emotionally. And then I hear their story and then I give them their personalized pie graph of what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. And then we do labs, right? A bunch of labs. So we know physically where they're at. And then we further personalize that pie graph. But I, that's so important to take that approach into health and healing because I don't care if it's cancer. I don't care if it is diabetes. I don't care if it's uh, arthritis. You've you got to take the same approach because no human being is that simple. We're not a machine. If only that approach would be done in cancer therapy clinics around the world. Most people get like a what, 10 minute it, it would appointment. Be game changing. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I love your analogy of the, the fields and the weeds to makes total sense. And I think that will really resonate and um, be quite insightful for a lot of people listening. And people do. Mm -hmm do really fear the genetic aspect of breast cancer as well and um, so they have a strong family history of breast cancer they know that they have the BRCA genes could you talk a bit more about the relevance of the BRCA genes and a bit about epigenetics versus genetics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah for sure so yeah the BRCA gene will predispose you it'll increase your predisposition towards breast cancer usually let's say you don't have a family history um, and you're just 
you know, my mom was healthy. She never had breast cancer. My grandma never had breast cancer. Usually what we're going to see is right around a 10% or if anything, a predisposition towards genetics, right? So let's say breast cancer never manifested in your grandmother, your sister, your mom, but there's still that gene, you're going to be around 10% predisposition. So you just said the word epigenetics, right? Which is how our environment, how many, how everything that is going into our body from the outside coming in affects and our thoughts, how it affects our genes. So the rest, the 90%, 90% is going to be based on that. So breast cancer manifesting is going to be truly, truly based on us, right? The environment. And there's no, there's known, there's known interventions that do con contribute to breast cancer, right? Diet, lifestyle, exercise, those are things that you're, you know, everyday run-of-the-mill oncologist is going to tell you that, which is really important. But there's, there's things that we need to look outside of us too, as far as not only, not, so most breast cancers are hormonally driven, right? They're usually estrogen driven. So you'll hear sometimes someone say, I have breast cancer and it's estrogen receptor positive. That means that the estrogen is really driving that breast cancer. It's a hormonal cancer. Um, so hormones are something that every single woman and man needs to be testing every single year. The problem is, is that you can't just go in and get a blood draw for hormones and call it a day, particularly when it comes to estrogen, right? What you need is more in-depth testing. And this is where integratively functional doctors come in, naturopathic doctors come in. Because when we do have that assessment for hormones, we're able to see, let's say you come in, we do your hormone test through the urine, we're able to see just how well your body's metabolizing estrogen. So it's not just estrogen. You take a blood test, it's going to say estrogen, low, high, good, right? But we're going to be able to see, is estrogen breaking down in the body and how? How is it breaking down in the body? And if the ratio of the form of estrogen then is most carcinogenic and most contributing to breast cancer, if that's high, right? So let's say your estradiol, right, which is just the, the main available form of estrogen that you're going to see in the blood, right, that might be normal. But then we take the urine test and we know that the breakdown of that estradiol is going to be truly uh, contributing to that form of uh, estrogen that is really, really high, uh, that is carcinogenic, then that's a problem. But you don't see, never seen it in a blood test. So hormones are huge, huge, huge. And guess what? Diet, supplements, lifestyle can really help control your hormones, inflammation, what's your insulin status, right? If you have particularly high insulin every single day and it's raising at the wrong times, which then comes, we start talking about fasting and late at night, that's an issue because insulin is one of the most powerful cancer promoting hormones in the body. So we have to go back to nature and follow our rhythms and know that, okay, you know, I'm supposed to have insulin stimulated now throughout this time of the day, but wait a minute, late at night. No, 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 no. Insulin is support. Insulin is more carcinogenic late at night. So, um, and then environment, where are we living? What are we doing? Where's our home? Right. And what are we being exposed to? Do we have chemicals in our home, off-gassing, mold? Do we have, uh, what are the cleaning supplies we're using, right? What's, what's the personal care products we're putting in our body every single day on our nails, right? These are all things that start filling up that cup so it starts overflowing and it can manifest as breast cancer to certain people and lastly, it's community. You have to make sure that like we, we have, we're so detached from our evolutionary need for connection and community 
and we'll see folks who undergo breast cancer therapy or even any, or any surgery or who are living in pain do much, much worse when they have no sense of community, no connection. These are all different parts of who we are that are completely, completely just overlooked in the conventional paradigm. Agreed. Yeah. And they've even said that loneliness and social isolation is worse than smoking 10 cigarettes per day for your health. We had a pain doc come, come on the show and speak about that study. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's huge. Even regardless of if you have breast cancer or not, you need to be in a community. That's what our genes expect. We're more connected than ever online, but in person, quite the opposite, which is sad to think. And mm -hmm. am I right that you were mentioning mm -hmm. the, is it the Dutch test that you were talking about? The urine test? Yes. Yeah. 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 I recommend yeah, that I have no well. affiliation with, yeah, no affiliation with it, but it's, it's just the, right now at this point, it's the most powerful test for someone who has any hormonally driven issues. I don't care if it's just breast cancer. It could be PCOS. It can be mm -hmm. just acne. It could be heavy periods. Um, it's such an important insight. So I tell people, listen, if you're healthy, great. But do, do one every year. Yeah. Do one every year. But if you have breast cancer, let's check, right? Some, some women will finish their breast cancer treatment and be recommended something called tamoxifen, which is going to really control their hormones, right? And by controlling their hormones, I'm talking about where you take this pill and it's going to be suppressing that estrogen, mm -hmm. right? Suppressing that, 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 it's basically doing the job of what literally a lifestyle supplemental protocol, lifestyle change supplemental protocol and very specific foods can do. So I'm, I'm not here to, I, and I can't legally say don't take something, but I can say that you can explore other options, which I've, I've done with patients with, the, with communication with their oncologist. And then they didn't go on the tamoxifen, which is important consideration because tamoxifen, one of the side effects of tamoxifen is breast cancer. So I think that women need to be more empowered about other options, staying on top of their hormones and know that they're literally something like cruciferous vegetables, right? Where you have broccoli sprouts can actually reroute that metabolization, that metabolism of, of estrogen and bring it to a healthier, more um, uh, healthier uh, form of estrogen that is detox easily throughout the body. Like where you want to go, basically. I usually say there's different, different roadways. And the roadway of the cancer-causing one usually has potholes and glass and all these things. Well, you can redirect that into a healthier, smoother road so you're detoxifying estrogen properly. Another great analogy. I love that one. And we have a whole um, podcast episode. It's number 25 with Dr. Carrie Jones. So she's like the queen of the mm -hmm. Dutch test. She knows all that stuff. So we talk about um, the metabolism and um, mm -hmm. estrogen dominance in that episode. So definitely check that one out if you haven't already. And Carrie is amazing. Yeah, she is. She's the best. With maybe some signs of breast cancer, are we just looking for lumps and cysts and discharge from the nipple or any, are there any other signs that we need to be doing? Uh, what about breast examination? Could you tell us what's, what's mm -hmm. important? Yeah, for sure. They, uh, the, a woman's breast is going to change all the time through, you're going to have lumps and bumps and um, if, especially if you have cystic breasts, it might even be harder to feel um, and, the, and throughout your cycle, it's going to change. But what I tell women to be most empowered. And I, I was pretty surprised once early in my career when I found out how many women don't check their breasts. Um, but I say, look, find, like, have 
a certain day of the month be your day to check your breast, right? Choose it the first Saturday of, of the month, the first Sunday, whatever day or, or whatever number day is special to you. Uh, and then all you have to do is go on YouTube and you can learn about the proper technique, right? The proper technique should always involve uh, going under the arms all the way up till right under the collarbone, right in the middle of the sternum. You want to cover the whole, uh, the whole section and know that most of the uh, breast cancers are manifesting in the upper outer quadrant. So if you split the chest into four, you're going to get it mostly near the armpit right? And the upper outside. And then learn how to be in touch with that part of your body. So you, as you develop that skill monthly, you'll feel more sensitivities. You'll, I mean, you'll be able more, you'll be have more tactile sensitivity in your fingers and you'll be able to feel around more and more. And you might go, okay, look, I feel this little lump and it's moving. You know, most, most cancers are usually fixed and hard like uh, it can be the size of a pea, but imagine a pea that is like just fixed into the tissue. Well, that's what you're going to be feeling if it is cancerous, but sometimes you might even feel it if it's not cancerous. So really what you want to do is know, okay, look here, this is where the lump was. Let me, let me either take a picture with my finger here. So I have some sort of reference. So then next month you can see if there was change. Uh, additionally, someone can take, have a thermography. I don't say thermographies are not diagnostic of breast cancer, but they're certainly a really good baseline to follow. So you can see either bi-yearly or yearly if there's any changes uh, in the form of the, the, the heat mapping that they show, if there's any changes, increasing of blood. Because um, a lot of these uh, technicians can be really skilled at saying, hey, I really think it's time for you to go, go get checked because you know, it's, it's gotten worse in the past three, six, nine months. Um, and, and I'm really gonna suggest that you get, go get a mammogram. And what are the potential downsides to mammograms? Why don't you just start there? Well, you don't, you don't just start there in America here because you, you can't, it's not recommended for a woman who's 21 years old, 22 mm. years old, right? So usually, um, usually what you're gonna do is, as a, as a woman, you're gonna wait till around your if you have a family history, it's usually earlier, but around in your 40s, mm -hmm. women start getting mammograms. Now, the radiation from a mammogram is, is lower dose, right? It's not super, super high dose. You're not going to get breast cancer from it. The big problem that I have long term with mammograms is that you're going to, to get over and over yearly, yearly, yearly a form of radiation that can actually throughout the years uh, have have the predisposition towards breast cancer in itself too. So it's sort of a, a cost, a cost a benefit, right? You have to see where you are, especially if you have a family history. I think it's important to, to track that, but that's again, where thermography comes in. You speak with your oncologist, you speak with the thermography practitioner, you find out what the best route is, because if you voice your concerns about, yes, you're getting uh, a specific dose of radiation, but you're getting it every single year, right? So then by the time you, let's say you start when you're in your 40s, by the time you're in your 60s, there's some concern. You see what I'm saying? So, um, and I'm trying to be open-minded about everything, right? So I worked integratively in a conventional hospital. So every woman who came in there got mammograms and, uh, and I, I worked with chemo and radiation. So integratively, there is a huge place for us to all work together. But I think that we have, not everyone is the same. You can't just have a woman come in and get the same 
cookie cutter treatment as someone else, I don't think that works. That's, it's, it, it absolutely doesn't work. Look at chronic diseases as a whole. We treat them the same way. The, the thing that really has changed changes diagnostically the way that we're able to detect. But we're using the same medications, drugs, some of the same chemotherapies that have been around since, since World War I, World War II. That's pretty incredible to hear that. Um, so anyway, that's, that's me just veering off a little bit, but those are my opinions. Yeah, and say someone is in her 30s um, and no family history of breast cancer, would you recommend getting a thermography, um, thermographic scan yes. regularly? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Not yeah. just if she finds... No, no. Okay. Get it every year. Get it every year. Because even, remember I said 90% of breast cancers are going to come really epigenetically, right? So, and let's say they did have a family history, that predisposition would be there, but and certainly get a thermography, but still everyone should be having a baseline year to year of their changes in their breast because it can really detect some things going on way earlier than a mammogram. Okay, interesting. And there's, there's clinics all over the countries, like in the US and the UK these days um, that will offer that. So people mm -hmm. can just do a Google search to see where they are located because they're not going to be offered in um, hospitals. I don't think in the UK, they're not anywhere. No. No, over here, I mean, I have some, I work with some people who will, you know, they come to the house even. They can mm -hmm. come to the house, which is really cool. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. And you said that you, um, you do a lot of integrative um, practices. So if someone is going through chemotherapy or radiation, using some alternative therapies alongside, what are some of the things that are safe to use? Because I know there might be some contraindications with herbs and nutrients are there any um, recommended things that people can look into? Obviously, diet, but anything else? Um, well, well, herbal, I, I wouldn't be able to recommend anything mm. because each person is different, right? It's person to person, very different. Their treatment's going to be different. The way they break, uh, what, what's contraindicated, as you mentioned, right? So, you know, you know, Jane can be on the same chemotherapy as as Mary, but but Jane is on a pain medication that if she uses you know, let's say ashwagandha or something, it's going to contraindicate. It can okay. theoretically slow down the breakdown of it. So that's, that, that's why, like, it, it, just because it's, it's natural doesn't mean that it is completely healthy for the person or safe, right? You have to make, that's why when it comes to, especially in cancer care, you have to work with someone who's trained, who's able to look for those contraindications to make sure that there's no theoretical issues going on. Um, but alternatively, yes, like integratively, the way I used to work is we'd have someone and before they, let's say they're, they're starting a regimen of chemotherapy and this chemotherapy is notorious for nausea. Well, then we start putting them on a protocol to prevent the nausea such that when it comes, it's minimized or it never comes. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, or over 60% of people get neuropathy, numbness and tingling in the hand and feet, which is a nasty one because if someone waits for neuropathy to show and then doesn't do anything about it for a long time, the, the, because nerves are such slow growing uh, pieces of tissue, they're going to experience that neuropathy for quite a while and it can be really, really bad. So let's say, okay, you're going on this regimen. You gotta put, you gotta have some sort of protocol to prevent that or minimize it. Um, that as a, every diet is different for every single person, but they're known um, foods 
that especially when it comes to hormones, as I was mentioning, like cruciferous vegetables, right? Cruciferous vegetables have that sulfur, which is helpful for the liver to detox, but it also has, um, it also has uh, different constituents within it that are really, really important in triggering that, um, that breakdown of estrogen in the liver. Really important. So uh, we're talking kale, we're talking Brussels sprouts, we're talking about broccoli sprouts, which are some of the strongest concentrated versions of it, cauliflower, all the stuff that when you put into a, uh, a container and open it at work, your coworker is going to yell at you because you're <laughs> smelling up the room. Yep. Like that, it's all, all of those are, are pretty much some of those important foods to be eating day to day. So important to see if you have breast cancer or predisposed to breast cancer, that's like a non-negotiable when I work, used to work with my patients. Um, it is because the power of what it does is, is so important. Um, and then, and then other stuff like, uh, the, the, what, one of the most powerful interventions you can possibly do for the prevention of breast cancer and, or if you've been diagnosed with breast cancer and having, uh, just, just long-term remission is exercise. And we're not just talking about like once a week going for a walk. It's actually the more intense exercise, the better these women were. So we're talking about weight bearing plus aerobic exercise. The combination of both is imperative if you have breast cancer or predisposed to breast cancer. I, I, I will not, like, I can say that again. Exercise is most likely number one or number two on my list for someone who is predisposed to breast cancer or who has breast cancer. So, or who just wants to prevent it, not even predisposed. Every single person, think about it, evolutionarily, we were just walking and walking and moving and moving and moving. Now we don't move. Movement is so, so important for the prevention of cancer. I don't care what cancer it is. Yeah. And then there's the quote, like, if you could bottle or sell or patent all of the benefits of exercise, it'd be the, <laughs> the best-selling drug on the market. And you don't... I'd be a billionaire at this yeah. point. <laughs> I, I agree. And it's so important. And if you can get outside and do some exercise, even better, like the vitamin D mm -hmm. and the um, fresh air. Mm -hmm all of that so do like a two-in-one mm -hmm. and get some additional benefits um maybe not in the yeah UK, get the sun not in the uk it's like dark at 4 p.m but you're lucky in la having having the sun i know i know i know I yeah but take some time on on a little break on whatever break you have even at work yeah it, i mean if the sun is showing up in the uk <laughs> but still even when you're going out during the day that's still enough to stimulate those biological rhythms in your body so you want to make sure that that light is hitting your eye, particularly when you wake up. That's really important. So I just say go outside, you know, for 10, 15, 20 minutes and then let that light hit you. That's really, really going to be uh, essential for those biological rhythms. We have to think about the rule of thumb for everything is just how did we evolve? What are our biological rhythms? Because for me, a big part of disease is that we just strayed away from our own evolutionary standard how we evolved, right? We were eating differently. We're communicating differently. Our relationships are differently, right? We're, we're not following those rhythms of day and night, right? We're not moving enough, right? So those things are the most important things for me is how are we staying closest to nature, right? Me, I'll wake up, I'll go outside, I'll let the light hit me, I'll walk, I'll go to the beach, I'll see panoramic, I'll see light. Not everyone has that, great. But still, if you're in if you're in Leicester City, you know, like get up, get up, 
take, take some steps outside, find a patch of grass, let the light hit you, drink your morning coffee. It might be cold, but you're getting that cold stimulation too, which is really important, right? We evolved with hot and cold, you know? And then at night, come nighttime, turn off the lights in your house, get some, get some really low power warm bulbs. So that's not stimulating the melatonin. Uh, so it's not stimulating the reduction of melatonin, right? I have the lights come off at my, at least in my room in my area. At night, all my Himalayan salt lights come on. I put my blue blockers on because what melatonin is doing at night, particularly if you have breast cancer or predisposed to breast cancer, it's going to be one of the most powerful anti-cancer hormones, right? This is why there's studies on high-dose melatonin in women with breast cancer. It's going to be one of the most powerful anti-cancer hormones at night, stimulating your immune system, detoxifying. It's so important to have melatonin at its highest level and then getting to bed at a normal time. Mm-hmm. And that's why people who work night shifts have such high rates of Alzheimer's, exactly. breast cancer, depression, so many things. And another episode that everyone needs to listen to is uh, episode number 53, I think it is, of the Hormones in Harmony podcast, who I interview, um, do an interview with Andy Mance, who's a founder of a Blue Blocks, Blue Blocking Light Glasses company. He was talking all about circadian mm-hmm. rhythm, um, getting outside, even if it looks dark outside it's still going to have different light spectrum and you're still going to benefit and i love your exactly your morning routine it sounds ideal um and i know that you you said when we were scheduling this podcast which i really admire of you like we're not gonna i'm not gonna go on my technology until midday i need my morning routine which i love i wish i could do that but i'm i'm most productive in the morning Mm -hmm. Um, and when the sun goes down mm-hmm. at four, I'm just kind of like a zombie. So <laughs> I wish I could do the same as you. Yeah. No. Well. Well. No. And that. But. But that's you. That's that's yeah. your physiology. That's your body. If you. If you. If you. Uh, re- read Dr. Michael Bruce's book. Uh, I forgot the name of it. It just came out. But uh, follow his work. He talks about the different uh, chronotypes for sleep. Okay. And not everyone is wired and, and adjusted the same way. Not everyone's supposed to go to sleep at 8 p.m. Yeah. I certainly can't. I'd be, I'd be in bed for four hours. Mm-hmm. But for me, I go to bed more around 11, 11.30. That's just because that's my, and I, but, but then again, I, I, would, I would be the most miserable person to be around if I woke up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m. I have to wake up around 7.30 or 8, you know, 8 o'clock is a good yeah. time for me to wake up mm-hmm. because that's just my body type. So we, we also have to understand that not everyone is the same and that bioindividuality goes a really long way aside from food. It also, it, it also affects our sleep. Definitely. And could you talk a bit about intermittent fasting? So I know you touched on it earlier um, and like the fasting mimicking diet, how that could relate to all of this. Yeah. So, uh, so what, this goes back again to those biological rhythms, right? Um, how are we wired? And when are we supposed to give our body that stimulus and input of food? And when are we supposed to let our body do what it does when we're not eating, right? And the way that aligns is during the day, we're supposed to eat. At night, we're not supposed to eat. And that mirrors the, the study where we see that women who are eating uh, or who are eating less than fasting less than 13 hours, at, the, at night, we're predisposed towards more breast cancer or more severe breast cancer um, or a return of breast cancer. So what I'm trying to say is that following those rhythms is really important. So for me, I tell breast cancer patients minimum 13 hours. Your last meal and your first meal uh, in the morning, last meal at night, has to, has to be a 13-hour gap because that seems to be the magic number. But also, I'm telling women not to eat late. 
right? Because that nighttime insulin, that nighttime insulin in particular, is going to be one of the most powerful stimulus for cell growth, and it's going to be a carcinogen, right? Uh, remember I said insulin is one of the most powerful cancer-promoting hormones. We need it, but it's also one of the most powerful cancer-promoting hormones. So we want to make sure our insulin is released when our body expects it to be released. Um, the fasting-mimicking diet is... There's a lot of studies coming out. I feel like every year there's something new coming out, and it is powerful. It is really cool. Um, I actually have the box here in my in my site right now for the for the five day long prolon fast. Um, that's that's I think it's the only one really out there right now. But um, it does it does mimic a five day fast with no food, although you are eating some particular foods. But the benefits are really really nice to hear, especially what's coming out not only for um, uh, protection against cancer, but also metabolic diseases like heart disease, diabetes. Um, what you're doing is you're allowing your body to break down all of the crap that it, it's sort of, let's say, distracted from breaking down because it's breaking down food instead. So it's, it's like, uh, I call it spring cleaning. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, I, I tell people who have cancer to either do, and I do have a former cancer patient doing this right now, a week-long fast. On the, on the prolon, you just have to make sure that um, you have to communicate with your team to make sure that you can do it, right? Because if you're trying to put on weight, it's really, if the number one thing that your dietitian or oncologist want to do is help you put on weight, then fasting might not be indicated at that point. So you want to make sure that it's safe first and foremost. True. Yeah. And it looks like some of the, I've heard good things, like the food isn't too bad. It's a bit like astronaut food. So it's like very basic. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Astronaut food. Yeah. yeah powders and snack bars and things it. yeah but it's um got some good research behind it definitely and with the fasting i think a lot of people are doing it maybe not as beneficial as they could so they're skipping breakfast and then they're eating at like 9 10 p.m they're having the last meal whereas i think and i think you agree that maybe bringing dinner a little bit earlier and even skipping dinner on some days if you feel up to that that works much better because you're that's how naturally we would have eaten exactly. when the sun was out, not when it was nighttime. Exactly. Our body's made better to break down uh, during the day. Yeah. That's when, that's when those rhythms, right? That light input is telling our body, okay, not only is it daytime, let's get those hormones going, uh, get that cortisol boosting up, but it's also telling our body, okay, well, we're ready to feed. And that light stimulus is telling our body, all right, let's calm down. Mm -hmm. You know, feeding might not be a good idea right now. So if, you're, if your biggest meal of the day is dinner and that's at nine o'clock, that might be a problem. You know, that might be a problem. Some people, and I can't speak to everyone, but that might be a problem overall when you look at the basic physiology of our rhythms. And that simple switch of just moving the time during a little bit could have a massive, uh, a massive benefit. So it's worth a try. And then last few questions exactly. I want to ask on diet. Um, I know that you follow more of a vegan diet and you're not a fan of dairy. Could you talk about why you, why you promote these things um, or why you choose to do that for yourself at least? Well, I, I, I started my vegan diet 11 years ago and that was based on spirituality. So that was my personal choice. And um, for me, it's, I know that at the very least, I'm getting an abundance of various colored fruits and vegetables, period. And all of those have been shown, many of those have been shown to be actually anti-cancer, right? They're going to be re reducing oxidants in the body, right? Those oxidants are going to be, those free radicals are going to be causing a lot of these DNA damages 
that happen that start promoting the progression, promote and then progress cancer. Um, also detoxification, all the important stuff. So I don't, I don't think there's many people aside from people who are proponents of the carnivore diet who are going to argue the importance of fruits and vegetables. And uh, it, it, it should be a staple. I don't care how you eat. It needs to be a staple for your diet, right? So I always say, if you look at a plate, it needs to be at least 60, 70% various colors, fruits and vegetables, and or just really vegetables. But uh, I eat my fruits in between or like after or before. So what I say is that's the most important approach is having variety because what you're doing is you're giving your body that important, those not only those important antioxidants, but uh, that fiber and fiber is so important. When I was just talking about insulin at balancing the insulin, fiber is so important at feeding your gut microbiome. Um, so that's the approach that I take um, for, for myself. It's, it's it can be indicated for many other people. If you follow the work of Nicholas Gonzalez, most breast cancers, he recommends a vegan diet. Um, he recommended different diets for different cancers, but most breast cancers, he recommends a vegan diet. But for me, I just say, look, if you have breast cancer, you have to get various colors, fruits and vegetables or predisposed every single day, multiple servings, six, seven, eight servings a day. And then getting those cruciferous, the cruciferous ones are the most important ones um, daily. Was there another part to your question here? Yeah, the dairy products and the connection oh, to yeah, the um, cancers and estrogen yes. levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually putting together um, with one of the um, one of the organizations here is a nonprofit uh, called Switch for Good, and they really start educating people about the importance of getting off dairy. What dairy does? It's really started with athletics because it's a bunch of Olympians, um, but. It's, it's translating to other things. So it's funny that you asked this because I'm putting together a piece for them. The connection between dairy and breast cancer is this. When you look at breast cancer, the, the biggest meta-analysis, um, and meta-analysis is just an analysis of all of the really strong studies or studies out there. It's a compilation, like a summary of all of them, says that it's not directly connected to breast cancer. The other thing that they say we, is that they, in their study, they were looking at low-fat diet, I mean, low-fat milk and fermented yogurt, most particularly being the protective ones, which, you know, you would, you would understand that, okay, yeah, if you're getting fermented food, that's different because it starts not only reducing the amount of, of hormones in the milk, but it's also giving the gut some healing mm -hmm. and support. But the concern in the literature for breast cancer in dairy is uh, in high fat, high fat milk and high fat products. So high fat milk, cheese, butter, those are the big concerns because what that fat, the, the belief is the fat is withholding the uh, hormones, which it is, right? That's where they're fat soluble. So the hormones are in there so that you're getting that hormonal input, exogenous hormonal input into the body, right? that is not meant for you, it's, it's meant for a cow to grow, that, those hormones are meant for a cow to be from 60 pounds to 600 pounds, but you're getting that exogenous input of hormones. And if you think about it, like how many, how many women come in with, or, or maybe clients of yours that you've seen with hormonal acne, and then they, they re reduce the animal products, particularly like butter, cheese, and milk, and it gets better. It's because those hormones that are not, in, that are not synthesized and made by you are contributing to the growth of that cancer. Not only that, then you think about 
dairy, it's, it's different, right? People are like, we've been drinking dairy for thousands and thousands of years. Well, that's different dairy than you're getting in industrialized countries. Those forms of dairy, right? We know, we know that they are given uh, hormones. They're giving feed, which is uh, inflammatory, right? Like genetically modified feed. We have glyphosate here. I'm sure it's in England too. Yep. Uh, glyphosate. And, and they're getting antibiotics and they're getting hormones, right? And we're not counting pesticides, other pesticides, herbicides. So what you're really getting in an industrialized country, if you have a glass of milk, is basically a soup of secretion that is, that is high in antibiotics, high in pesticides, high in herbicides, um, and, and, and synthetic, basically. It's, it's got such a synthetic angle to it with all of that crap. And it's so different than what people had, you know, in the, let's say in the country, in the, in the, in the hills of England is completely different than what that is. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem for me. That's a big problem for me. And I did, we didn't even talk about how dairy stimulates IGF-1, which is known in the literature to be a main driver of cancer, IGF-1. That, that's known. It, I don't care if it's organic dairy. I don't care if it's from the country hills dairy. I don't care if it's from, you know, one of the factory farms dairy. It's going to be stimulating IGF-1. More data we need to see, but we know IGF-1 is connected to the pushing of uh, cancer cells. And casein, that protein too, can be quite stimulating to cancer cells. So, when you look at dairy as a whole, why the heck would, why do we need it? There's the study I was reading yesterday about dairy. At the end, the authors say, well, with all of this said, and the induction of plant milks, that might be a better choice overall. And these, this is like a pro-dairy uh, article. So what I'm saying is if we have choices and we have the education now, and we have the studies that are showing this, why are people still consuming dairy? That's my question, especially the higher fat ones like whole milk, cheese, and butter. Great. So just to finish up now, I only I know we only have a few minutes left. Um, I just want to find out a little bit more about you, ask you a few personal questions, just like a quick fire. So the first one is, what's your cool. goal for breakfast? If you do breakfast, I know some people don't. I do do breakfast. I, I, so I do, I do my ritual and then I come home uh, after like an hour hour and a half and then I will have like yesterday I had quinoa I had some um, quinoa pistachio milk from a company called three trees really good one here and I put um, pumpkin seeds on it and some fruit that's that's sort of like a, a go-to breakfast that I'll have or this morning I, I was ready to make a smoothie I'll, I'll be having it after this um, this podcast mm-hmm and then is the one herb, nutrient, or supplement that you couldn't live without? Mm. Uh, lion's mane. Okay. I use it almost every day in different forms, either a tea or a tincture or a supplement or a powder. But lion's mane has been something that I've, there's been a palpable, lion's mane is basically an herb that, that feeds the brain. It, it increases something called BDNF. BDNF is the, it's, it's the factor that increases the growth of neurons in the brain and communication and, and connection and flow of the brain. It basically gives you a healthy brain. And it's one of, been one of the most palpable things. I can feel it. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm more focused today. I'm, I'm pretty good. I like this. I'm, I don't have a sleepy brain. Yeah, it's like miracle growth for the brain and combine that with exercise. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, amazing. Exactly. <laughs> now, you see, now you're on it. Now you know my little secret sauce. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and is there something that you're into lately? So it can be health related, it can be completely random that you want to share with us. 
community. Community is the health goal of 2020. I believe that it is so understated, understudied, and community, I believe, is one of the biggest keys, if not the biggest key to health. If you look at the blue zones, they don't necessarily all eat this diet or that diet, but what the blue zones all have in common with the highest amount of centenarians, people over 100 have in common, is that they all have some sort of forged community. They have something in common. They, they see each other daily. They communicate. They know their neighbor. Community, for me, is the most important thing in 2020, and I am nurturing that in every single way. Amazing. And I know it's not kind of the same thing that you're talking about, but I highly recommend everyone follow you on Instagram and join your Instagram community. It would be good if we could all meet mm. in person, but I highly recommend it because yeah. you just share a lot of um, amazing tips and information like you showed today and i feel that everyone wants to go and follow you on instagram if they're not already so can you share where people can find more from you online and your podcast yes my podcast is called heal thyself and that is a weekly podcast we have all amazing um guests um i go over how to how to spot good ingredients what to look for how to food shop and um i drop some knowledge on many different topics that you know, need, need knowledge basically. Yep. And then my Instagram is at D-O-C-T-O-R, doctor.g. You'll see me um, post pretty much like, I don't know, three or four times a week, but I'm pretty active and it's been community. See, that's like a virtual community, but it's still yeah. a sense of community because we're able to all communicate with each other, learn from each other, give each other things that maybe we need support in. So um, that's the beauty. It's just a microcosm of what we need now more in person. Definitely. So thank you so much, Dr. G, for your time and fitting me into your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. And I think so many women are going to benefit from this information. So thanks again. No, thank you for empowering your women, put, uh, putting it out there and, and knowing that, okay, look, maybe if there's anyone we can help spot breast cancer or look for breast cancer, know things that we can do and intervene to prevent breast cancer. Like you are doing great work. Uh, I'm doing great work. Anyone who's trying to get people healthy is doing great work, so I applaud all of us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.